Some people collect stamps, precious stones, or artifacts from another time. Me, I collect stories. I love stories that come out of conversation because they hold so many things all at once. Memories, emotions, lessons, new perspectives, comic relief, and so much more. They have the power to move us, to open our hearts, to connect us, to heal us. Stories offer a window into another person's universe, and I get to see what it's like to experience life from their eyes. They are an invitation to celebrate what makes us unique and what makes us the same. But most of all, I love how stories bring us together. How they harmonize us. How they remind me that each one of us is an essential voice in one glorious symphony. Welcome, my friends, to the harmony of stories. Hey, everybody! It's May fifteenth, six thirty a.m. Monday, it's just getting light outside. I hear a lot of birds chirping. I think it's gonna be a beautiful day. We're at episode nine now. That's pretty fun. In this episode, I share my conversation with Will Bowling of Old Home Place Farm in Oneida, Kentucky. Will is a wildlife biologist, conservationist, and grass farmer. We talk about the history of elk and of subsistence farming in southeastern Kentucky, the restoration and return of wildlife in this region, the incredible benefits of raising ruminants and pigs on pasture, intensive rotational grazing, silvopasture, or growing trees in pasture for shade, synergy and abundance, and how. They manage their livestock in their farm in the winter months, working with nature to create more ease, flow, and abundance is one of my favorite things to talk about or listen to. Hearing about regenerating and building soil through holistic management of land is something that makes my heart so happy. So I very much enjoyed this conversation. I learned a ton, and I know you will too. Old Home Place Farm is now open for signups to the summer season of their CSA, or their vegetable subscription service, and they've just added a bunch of fresh vegetables to their online store. So if you live in the area, I would highly recommend checking them out and supporting your local farmers. I have links to their website and their Instagram page in the show notes. I mentioned a book during. My conversation with Will. This book is called *The Omniverse Dilemma: A Natural History of Four Meals*. It's written by Michael Pollan, one of my absolute favorite books of all time. It's just brilliant. I urge you to read it if you're interested in this topic. It is one of the best introductory books you could read on the topic of permaculture and slow food. For our song of the week, I thought it might be fun to do some bluegrass. So let's try "Kentucky Borderline" by Rhonda Vincent. Super enjoyable song to listen to. 
I learned about it from my neighbor who's 83 years old and he loves country music, just adores it. So I put a link to that on the show notes and I've also got links to my Harmony of Stories playlists on Spotify and YouTube if if you're looking for something to listen to. So one more thing before we start, I just wanted to share with you an online event that is going to start on June 20th, so mark your calendars. It's called The End of COVID. This is a topic that's close to my heart. I'll read to you the description. So many speakers are speaking here, a lot of people that I really admire and look up to and trust. So here's the description. The end of COVID is exactly what it sounds like. For the first time ever, we're coming together to educate the public on a mass scale about everything that's transpired over the past three years, and so much more. With 88 sessions, the end of COVID will cover everything from electron microscopy to masks. We're going all the way back to the origins of the germ theory of disease and touching on every so-called pandemic up to the present. Exposing the granular details of these concepts to the masses is the only way we can put an end to this fictional reality show once and for all. Finally, on June 20th, the show is over. Find links to that in the show notes. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Will Bowling. So tonight, I am with Will Bowling in, I'm going to mess this up, is it Oneida, Oneida, I keep forgetting. Uh, Oneida in Kentucky, I think, uh, Oneida in Tennessee or New York, but we're... There's a New York one as well? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm excited for this because I'm very interested in grass farming. (laughs) Maybe I'll do that one day, but anyway, Will is a biologist, a conservationist, and a grass farmer. Currently, he works for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and of course, he works here at Old Home Place Farm. If you guys listened to my episode where I was speaking with Maggie, Will is Maggie's husband. Welcome to the podcast, Will, and thank you for for the time. Yeah, glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I wanted to start with the the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation because before we recorded, you were talking about that and I, I wanted to know more. So yeah. could you explain a little bit about who they are and what you do there? Yeah. Uh, so I've been with uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for about six months, coming up on six months now. But uh, we're a membership-based conservation organization. Uh with elk being as our centerpiece all across the United States, but uh, really focused on habitat and land conservation. So that's what we do. That's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, My background, my career is as a uh, wildlife biologist. Uh, Spent most of my career doing elk work with Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources and and mostly elk work during that time. Uh, Worked on a few other species here and there, but predominantly elk work. Um, and uh, did some forestry work with the Nature Conservancy after that. But, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing with RMEF, just uh, kind of day in, day out, working with uh, state and federal agencies and private landowners 
on habitat uh, habitat management for elk and other species. And then uh, also working on conservation. So actually uh, working with private landowners to conserve their land through conservation easements. So uh, kind of a, a voluntary easement program, which they agree to actually receive money oftentimes to really? agree to maintain wildlife habitat on their property or sometimes working with state or federal uh, wow. wildlife agencies to uh, to actually purchase land and hold it in the public trust. So that's kind of wow. what we do day in and day out. Okay, so is it a lot of dealing with people? Yeah. It's a very yeah. kind of... Yeah, and and actually, that's what I found most uh, mo most wildlife work is uh, is is a uh, largely people management. So it's a uh, wildlife <laughs> management, but it's a lot of people management too. Is that was that what you intended to do in the beginning? Or you know, you I, I, I saw pretty quick that's what it was going to be, which is a uh, which is great. I mean, it's great to work with folks, and I mean, there's always a. Uh, a wide array of people, a lot of stakeholders have different ideas about what they would like to see done. And it's really about kind of, uh, as a professional, as a biologist, kind of knowing what the wildlife resource and the habitat, kind of what the needs are on that side, okay. uh, seeing what the, what the interests are from the human side, mm -hmm. and then really trying to mesh those two together. Uh, okay. So I will say... Through most of my career, uh, both at the state agency and now working with RMEF, uh, really kind of focused more on what uh, what I would classify as is conservation. So actively working to try to try to uh, improve things and and see how human needs can be met at the same time as the wildlife and the uh, just the environment's needs versus maybe what you might classify as strictly preservation, so kind of hands-off. Right. Uh, so I've, I've definitely been more on the conservation side, so taking a, an active role uh, versus being in the preservation uh, side of things where it's more hands-off and uh, a lot less human involvement, but that's, okay. that's not really been where I've worked at uh, right. to date on that side of things. Okay. So is, is there a lot of going out into the field and like identifying like the trees and which need to go? Is that, is that the kind of thing? Yeah. Like what uh, plants are around? Yeah. Uh, now a little bit less of that now than it might've been, uh, before when I was, uh, working for the state wildlife agency, uh, we were doing, uh, some management, uh, we're doing a lot of research. So we were actually trapping mm -hmm. elk, putting, putting collars on them, uh, radio tracking collars, right. uh, and seeing, seeing habitat utilization, uh, seeing kind of where they spent most of the time seeing, uh, reproductive rates, all that type of thing. Uh, so that's what it was doing before a lot of field work. Uh, now it's more, uh, working. I would say a little bit more zoomed out. Uh, so working to build capacity instead of being out in the field as much and actually doing some of the work with the animals, which is uh, which is awesome and why why most folks in this field get into it. But instead of doing that, uh, really kind of working more with the funding side of things and really trying to leverage more impact, uh, 
trying to trying to figure out how to lever a gym pack instead of uh, just working on one specific project, trying to get more projects off and rolling and, okay. and going at it from that direction. And you said that this is a nationwide organization. Yep, yep. Is there a lot of elk in Kentucky? Yeah, uh, Kentucky actually has the largest elk herd east of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, so elk were incredibly widely spread uh, prior to European colonization. Uh, so prior to European settlement, elk were actually the most widely spread deer species. They are wow. they are a type of deer, uh, most widely spread deer species in the lower 48. So they they were largely uh, killed out because uh, uh, some of it outright persecution probably from folks farming and just trying to get by. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're uh, trying to raise your living in a place and you're uh, kind of homesteading and subsistence farming, I can imagine uh, uh, 200 years ago where you might have saw a, a herd of 20 elk coming in, getting into the garden as a... Uh, <laughs> 20 elk, yeah, oh my God. Uh, as, a, as a definite threat to your existence, so yes. I can understand that. Uh, but also there was a lot of... Uh, just didn't have hunting regulations, okay. so it was a lot of unregulated hunting. And uh, unfortunately, all of the elk in the eastern U.S. were all killed out. Uh, Kentucky's... Uh, last elk was killed sometime around the Civil War, probably just prior to the Civil War, 1850s, 1860s. Right. But uh, but over the last 30 years, there's been a lot of interest in bringing native species back, elk being one of them. And uh, starting in 1997, Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, actually with financial support from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, brought back uh, over a several year period, brought back about 1,500 animals into the state of Kentucky. And, and now we have uh, some word to the population model, of course. It's got a, got a, a sideboards on either side of it, but probably somewhere around 15,000, 16,000 elk in the state of Kentucky. They, they've done really well here over the last, uh, again, less than 30 years, but they've done really well and probably... One of the coolest things is 30 years ago, we didn't have any elk in uh, in central or southern Appalachia. There were some elk in Pennsylvania, but we didn't have any elk uh, around us here in Kentucky. But now we have elk herds in Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and down in North Carolina as well. That's so and, great. Uh, and that's all, wow. that's all just come about from the really from the, the work of the folks at the uh, state wildlife agencies, uh, some of the federal agencies as well, and then uh, private organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation who oftentimes actually raise the money mm. to, uh, to allow these projects to, to happen. So That's a really big change. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild to me. I'm, I'm born and raised here in southeast Kentucky. I'm uh, I'm 40 years old, and when I was growing up, when I was a kid, we really didn't have. Uh, I mean, a lot of the wildlife that we have now, we just simply didn't have them. We we didn't have elk, we didn't have black bears. Uh, I mean, we we, we had squirrels, rabbits, uh, law fish, things of that nature, yeah. but we didn't really have many deer. We didn't have elk. We didn't have bears, river otters. 
uh, ravens, bald eagles, beavers. I mean, things it's I mean, things that we see on a day-to-day basis now or on a very regular basis, we didn't have when I was 10 years old. Uh, uh, again, that... I can I can remember when it wasn't like this. <laughs> really? Wow. And so. is that for the reason that you said earlier because <clears throat> the homesteaders had to drive them out? Uh, some, some of it was that. Some of it was habitat loss for some species. So it was probably different for each species. So some of the larger ones, uh, so deer, deer, elk, and bear, uh, wild turkey, they were probably hunted out largely. So some persecution uh, from, uh, I say persecution, I mean it's really just people people surviving, you know. Yeah. Uh, so part of it that and part of it 200 years ago we didn't have hunting regulations. We really didn't know how to manage the wildlife and there wasn't a regulatory structure to do that. Whereas right. today we have hunting seasons and mm-hmm. Seasons are managed so that we're not killing the females. Oftentimes, during the time of the year when they might be uh, yes. might be breeding or having little ones, things of that nature. So we've learned a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, so that's uh, we've come a long way. But habitat loss was uh, the case for some some of those species. But over time, it's uh, really changed. A lot of those species have been brought back from. Uh, it was uh, kind of human intervention that moved them off the map. Yeah. And for a lot of them, it's been human intervention that's brought them back. Uh, so the elk, in, here in Kentucky uh, specifically, uh, elk and wild turkey and deer, river otter uh, fall into that category. Whereas some of the other species have just kind of moved back in on their own. They've recolonized and they've slowly just moved back in. So, uh, wow. uh the beavers uh, have done, they've been a case of that. Uh, ravens, uh, a, lot of, a lot of those species have just kind of, black bears even, have just come in over time That's and uh, made their home here. So, uh, which is where they belong. It's good. Again, it's pretty cool yeah. to know that we have all this uh, yeah. right out here in their backyard today. So That is a beautiful story. <laughs> and with the, so when they brought in all that elk, how did it work with like how much food there was available in the forests for them? Yeah, like was yeah. that kind of considered first, or did it all kind of happen at the same time, or was it like a it goes hand in hand? Yeah, no, it, it was definitely considered first. Uh, so before before any of uh, before any of the elk were brought back into Kentucky, uh, they spent uh, Kentucky Fish and Wildlife spent several years doing a habitat assessment. So first of all, making sure that there was enough habitat, enough food resources to meet the animal's biological needs. But then even beyond that, uh, kind of going on at the same time in tandem with that, uh, KDFWR also did a kind of a social study as well and held public meetings inside the elk restoration zone. Uh, so there are 16 counties in Kentucky that's uh, part of the official elk restoration zone. So they had uh, public meetings there to ask the residents what they thought. They had a, uh, a public comment period where folks could write in and say, uh, tell kind of what their thoughts were about bringing elk back before they were ever brought back, before the first elk ever got put on a truck. Wow, yeah. Uh, to be brought back uh, and, and really the thing that's I mean I was a 
freshman in high school when the first elk got brought back to Kentucky. So first elk to be back in Kentucky in over 150 years. Wow. Got turned out when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, so I, I remember it. But what was really interesting to me as a professional looking back on it now is uh, when all those uh, public comments were coming in, if you go back and look at all those public comments, 90% of the comments favored bringing of, from Kentucky citizens, 90% of the comments favored bringing elk back to Kentucky. Wow. And if you look at comments from the elk restoration zone itself, 99% of the comments favored bringing elk back. Uh, so it's a uh, it's a uh, something that the public's been really has been supportive of uh, since day one, since before day one, really. Mm-hmm. So before the elk ever uh, first elk ever got brought back to Kentucky. So it's uh it's went well so far. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope for <laughs> for the planet. You know. So you remember this when you were in high school? How long have you been? fascinated by elk oh i i remember uh well i remember hearing about it when uh when it was happening and just thinking that was the coolest thing i'd ever heard really yeah and uh and and yeah i mean i was just blown away with it uh went to college and uh ended up getting a uh, degree in in wildlife biology or in essentially essentially a path that allowed me to become a wildlife biologist and uh Pretty early into that path, I saw an opportunity that I might be able to work with them, and I have. I've, I was able to be fortunate enough to do that, and uh, mm. I've been working with them, started working with elk full-time in 2005. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's great. Not, not a lot of people can say that, you know, that that's what I wanted and that's what I'm doing now. Uh, yeah, been been fortunate to be able to do that and and be able to do it right here in my backyard too. I mean, it's yeah. uh, right here in the region where I grew up, and uh, it. I mean, that is something that was important to me too. Is I wanted to wanted to have a job where I could live here. I mean, I'm mm. born born here, raised here, and I knew this is where I wanted to where I wanted to stay at too. So yeah. I've uh, been fortunate that I got to do some really cool things. Uh, with the elk, but I also got to have a career where I did get to, did get to stay here in the region too, which was yeah. important to me. Yeah. How old were you when you moved to this property? Uh, well, this property, uh, this farm, Maggie and I bought in 2013, summer of 2013. We didn't move down for several years, but uh, I actually didn't grow up uh well, I grew up in the area. I grew up about 10 miles away. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I grew up on a piece of land that uh been in my dad's family for generations. And uh, so that's where I was raised up at. Uh, when I was in college, my mom and dad, uh, my mom, one of my mom's cousins had a farm outside of Oneida. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents had just sold a, uh, they had a small business, a, uh, a convenience store. They had just sold that convenience store and were kind of looking for the next thing. And uh, my mom's cousin who had the farm had uh, just bought a convenience store, different <laughs> convenience store, but he had just bought a convenience store uh, about uh, 
about an hour and a half away, and he was looking to get out of farming. So my parents were able to buy that farm that had been in her family mm-hmm. for since the 1860s, 1870s. Wow. And uh, they moved there while I was in college. Uh, I'd never done, none of us had ever done any commercial farming before. We'd always had a big garden, kept some laying hens, even had some milk goats and, and oh, milk and that sort of thing when I was growing up. But I yeah. mean, it was definitely more along the lines of, of of what you'll see a lot of people around here doing. I mean, it's uh, most most folks living around here wouldn't necessarily call it homesteading, but it's, I mean, that's essentially what it is. I mean, yeah. might might not be growing everything that they're eating, but mm. definitely raising big gardens and, and like I said, have some chickens and that sort of thing. And that's what we did, but we'd never actually farmed. They had never farmed for money. We'd always just kind of raise stuff to small scale for us. But uh, yeah. after my mom and dad bought that farm, it uh, I, I lived there through the summers when I was in college and just fell in love with that as well. I mean, it was just awesome. It was great. Uh, and uh, had a really good time doing that and uh, got involved with it. So when the opportunity came to purchase this property, which is about four miles from uh, mom and dad's place, uh, Maggie and I jumped on that opportunity back in 2013. And, yeah. Uh, we've been down here ever since. That's so cool. It really it <laughs> feels like it was meant to be. Yeah. What uh, So the thing that's really interesting to me, I mean, it just kind of turns out it is how it is, but uh, the farm where my mom and dad are at, uh, my great-great, I think it was five greats back, grandfather, who uh, uh, was the first one to kind of have the, uh, in our family, to have the farm. Uh, his place was down there, uh, kind of the main, main house and everything where he lived at was where my parents are at today. And the uh, this farm was the other end of his farm. So that was one end of it. This right. was the other end of it. It's, it's funny that uh, my parents had the farm that was in the family, but yeah. uh, when Maggie and I bought this place, it was actually part of the part of the old family farm too. Uh, what? <laughs> wow. Small community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there a lot of land like this here that's available? I guess. I mean, like. I mean, does it, I guess what I'm trying to say is, does it, do the families who own these properties generally keep them for a very long time? I would say, I would say it differs. I would say more, more yes than no. I mean, there's, there's always land coming up for sale and there'll be tracks up for sale and, and, uh, farms and such. But in general, I would say there's probably more of it held on to than, than turned over. Uh, maybe more so than it might be in other areas. Maybe not. I'm not sure. I'm, I don't really have a whole lot to compare it to, but I do know there are a, a lot of folks uh, uh, that still have. I mean, some of the property, the property directly beside us, uh, some of my cousins own it. And I mean, they're fairly, they're distant cousins, but they yeah. they are cousins that, that own that and the farm next to them. It's also some of my cousins, okay. again, distant cousins, but they're, they're still cousins yeah. that own that. And, uh, so yeah, I would say it, uh, there, there are definitely pieces of property that turn over, but I mean, it's also a, a pretty big part of most people can, most people that live here, uh, do consider land part of their heritage for the most part. And, and a lot of people have pretty strong ties to it, pretty strong memories of 
yeah. growing up there and maybe been there with her with her mama and her papa or grandparents mm-hmm. or something of that nature and having hear the stories all down through the line of uh of the things that happened there yeah but when their when their grandparents were growing up so i mean it was yeah. uh uh something like that a lot of people do hang on to the land just mm-hmm. just for that type of reason yeah where did you go to college i went to uk so was that just local like <clears throat> no no it, it's in lexington so it oh, wasn't lexington. too far yeah a couple hours away i guess so yeah wouldn't wasn't too far. Uh, it was the the state school, so I ended up. Uh, it's one of the one of the state universities, and uh, I actually didn't go there planning to uh, go into wildlife. Uh, I I didn't. Re- to be honest, I didn't realize they had a wildlife program. I started out really? in uh, yeah, I started out in the in bioenvironmental engineering, and uh, one of my buddies switched programs and i was talking to him and found out that he switched into a wildlife program and oh. and uh to be honest i mean i've always thought it was really cool and i mentioned knowing about the elk restoration and things like that but i didn't realize that you could actually make a career out of the science side of wildlife wow. just i didn't even know it was a thing <laughs> but uh but uh when my buddy switched out and it's like oh yeah i'm gonna be working this summer catching black bears i'm like all right, I'm sold. I'm gonna, <laughs> I also will be switching my major. So. <laughs> wow. Do you see a lot of bear here? You know, I've never seen one on this property. We've seen sign, uh, but we do have quite a few of them around. It's something we didn't have when I was growing up. I did see one yesterday, not here on this property. I was uh, out for work in a, 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 the county just to the south of us, and I saw one down there, but wow. big, old, big old pretty big old pretty bear probably about 300 pound bear i'd say i really want to see one i've never (laughs) seen one you know apart from in a zoo but i want to see one in the wild but we have a a neighbor he's i think he's 82 or 83 years old now and there was a bear that came to steal the meatloaf from his outdoor fridge (laughs) and he was so mad about it yeah that sounds like a very uh a very bear-like thing to do so (laughs) it's so crazy and it wasn't even afraid of him you yeah, know? and but yeah, he came over to our house to warn us about you know the bears coming down and that they don't usually like he said I've lived here all my life and this has never happened. And, yeah, and he wanted to warn me because we have little kids, and but he was so mad he was like the bear took my meatloaf and <laughs> he was really angry. <laughs> That's my meatloaf. But um, yeah, that would absolutely. be enough to get on your nerves. I think. I mean, <laughs> counting on that meatloaf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. And his daughter made it, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is that. That is one of the one of the issues with bears. And I mentioned that wildlife management was was largely people management. And I mean that's that's part of it. I mean, in in like I said, we didn't grow up here. We didn't have bears here. 30 40 years ago mm-hmm. and uh bears bears just know what bears know uh so yeah. if they come in they find a somewhat closed box sitting out on a porch it's got meatloaf in it <laughs> bear thinks that's the best thing ever bear doesn't know any better so uh yeah it's, it's something like that it's uh unfortunate but we have to try to change as people, because uh, yeah. the bears aren't going to change. I mean, no. they're going to they're going to look for a easy food source. So I mean, it's one of those things. We can stop a lot of problems by 
by keeping your trash up and not putting your trash out until the morning until trash pick up and bird feeders are mm. are a big thing i mean uh if you've got bird feeders i mean there's some times of the year you might not want to have a bird feeder because the bears will come to it so um, it's a uh, uh, just a learning process mm-hmm. uh and a lot of people some people are somewhat resistant to that yeah. but uh but i always i always try to remind folks i mean the the bears just doing what the bears want to yeah. do. We we can learn. We can uh, we can adjust, and we might not want to, but we can. And people yeah. have done it uh, other places. It's just yeah. uh, we're having growing pains from it right now. But I, I don't I don't blame your neighbor for being aggravated. This <laughs> meatloaf though. <laughs> do you know if there were bears like say a hundred years ago in this area? Hmm. You know, I'm not sure when the when the bears were kind of pushed out. Uh, if I were having to guess, I would say probably not a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, probably 175 years ago, definitely 200 years ago for sure. I mean it, uh, but yeah, a hundred years ago. The the thing that's really crazy that a lot of people don't realize is that a hundred years ago. And there are some pictures out there that you can see, but a hundred years ago, you see all these mountainsides with the trees on them. Yeah. We didn't have trees. Really? <laughs> we we essentially did not have trees in any part of southeast Kentucky. I mean, a few exceptions, but for the most part, everything was cleared off and people were farming it. And is the hills? Yeah, the hills because they had to. I mean, there there wasn't a lot of other option. And there was some logging too, uh, up until probably probably nineteen hundred. There was all local logging, so folks cutting mm-hmm. trees for log cabin for their barn for local use. But uh, after about nineteen hundred uh, nineteen twenty, especially after railroads started coming in, uh, man, it was a lot of logging. But people were also clearing the hillsides to uh, to farm them. Uh, if you think, if you look at this and, and think about how little flat ground <laughs> we, we have in Southeast Kentucky, and we, we really do not have much yeah. flat ground at all in Southeast Kentucky. If you're, have a big family and several big mm-hmm. families, uh, and trying to raise them and it was all, for the most part, all subsistence agriculture. So people were. People raised what they ate for the most part. Yeah. I mean, there were there were some other items coming in, but uh, at least speaking for right here, Clay, Leslie County, in uh, some of our surrounding counties here, that was very much the case. Uh, and again, it's different if you got out uh, in other places. You might have had a little bit better access to uh, transportation and stuff. But yeah. uh, up until probably the 1920s, it was still primarily subsistence agriculture, and there just wasn't enough flat ground to go around. That's uh, surprising. I thought a lot of these hills are rock, though. Oh, they are. But you can still <laughs> yeah. grow. Not much. I mean, if you look at i uh, I've seen the U.S. Uh, Census of Agriculture, uh, from the early 1900s and uh, is looking at corn production. And I've seen for Harlan County, which is just south of us, it was like the average yield was like 14 bushels to the acre of corn. I think uh, Kentucky's average last year was 170 bushels to the acre. 
Well, part of that is is genetics. Part of that's better breeding uh, on the on the corn side. Part of it's mm-hmm. having access to fertility. But a lot of it is we were just growing corn in places where you shouldn't be growing corn, <laughs> but we had to. I mean, we didn't have a didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so there was a lot of that. I mean, uh, even when my dad was growing up, uh, there were a lot of the. So maybe not farming the straight up the side of the mountain at that point. That was starting to grow back into timber by that time but a lot of the the coves so kind of the little hollers up toward the head of a holler go up a holler and most of the way to the top of the mountain but i mean that's where they were had their call it their new ground at so that's where they had their new ground that they cleared the brush off of and they went in and put uh put uh some corn and uh their corn and taters and stuff like that up there so yeah. It was a uh, pretty pretty different, and again, that was back in the that was a that was the sixties and the seventies, and they were still doing that, still wow. still raising the new grounds up on the side of a mountain. So again, not straight up and down, definitely not as steep as some of the places that when you see pictures from the early nineteen hundreds. I mean, they were raising corn and taters on places that you're like how's the mule walking around the side of that mountain just about i mean like it it should be growing trees not taters (laughs) but but people did what they had to they could have grown fruit trees maybe yeah and there were there were a lot of fruit trees that were growing around that time too and i mean that that's the other thing it wasn't just corn and taters i mean that's the other thing (laughs) i've really enjoyed about looking back at like those uh the census of agriculture i just find endlessly fascinating uh because i mean it was a a census of what the farmers were growing and it was Mm -hmm. a snapshot in time of largely subsistence agriculture but i mean it was here in clay county in the 1920 census it was i can't remember how many thousands of bushels it was like tens of thousands of bushels of apples that were raised here in the county and i mean most of them were for home use and i mean there was barley and wheat and all kinds of stuff there's also like 30 35,000 acres of corn maybe it's like what's that they grew wheat yeah yeah wheat there's a yeah and i mean it was all for home use so there wasn't a wasn't a whole lot of it grown it was mostly corn uh but there was some wheat some barley some rye uh all that stuff that did uh who knows when the last time any of that was raised here in Clay County. Now, it's certainly not a crop that anybody grows today, but yes, uh, the wheat, there's actually a place probably, uh, from where we're sitting, it's probably five, six miles as a crow flies. That growing up, it was it was called the threshing rock. And, uh, oh, wow, threshing rock. Yeah, threshing rock. And that's, that's yeah. what it was, is it was a big old rock outcropping on the main top of the ridge. It was a cliff that kind of stuck out. Right. And that's uh, where everybody, when they raise their wheat, <laughs> that's where they would take it up and thrash it at. So they would lay their wheat on top of it, and they would flail it wow. there, and it always had a wind blowing across it, so it would blow the wow. chaff away. So that's where they would thrash their wheat at, so it would blow the chaff away. But, I mean, that, that one land feature is where everybody in the community <laughs> went to thrash their wheat. So. Wow. They, they didn't have a booking system. They're just like, I'm just going to go out there first come, yeah, first serve. First come, first serve, probably. <laughs> I wonder if they had like a line like to wait. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's so interesting. Thank you for the history. I don't know much about this place. Well, it 
the, the things neat to me is any place where you're at, and I mean, I definitely know more about the history of, of this place than I do anywhere else, but I, yeah. I know that anywhere has its own history like that, and I'm just fascinated by that type of thing. I definitely went in a lot deeper on the on the history of, of the area here where I'm at, but I mean, yeah. every place just got to... Uh, I mean, just learn about the lives of the people who were there and mm-hmm. kind of the decisions they made and, and how the land itself kind of kind of pushed them, kind of shaped the decisions and the culture. I mean, that's that's just so fascinating to me, mm-hmm. just learning how the, the land itself, the geology, what you could do with the land, mm-hmm. uh, how that kind of shaped the, the, how the humans interacted with each other and what they did. So. Yeah, that is very interesting. Why why is corn like the top crop to grow? You know, I think uh, so. Traditionally around here, it was uh, it it grows. You get a so like fourteen bushels to the acre, notwithstanding. I mean, it is one of the crops that you can get a, a relatively big harvest off of, and it's pretty easy to store. I mean, it's a big kernel, easy to plant, uh, uh, more so than some of the small grains are. It just does good here. Okay. It does relatively good here. And then people were, again, it's one of those things that you, I've, I've oftentimes wondered whether it was the crop that shaped the people or the people that shaped the crop. I think in this case, it's probably more the, uh, probably some of both. But I mean, it's like around here, like I grew up, every. A lot of people still eat cornbread, cornbread and soup beans, that type of thing. And I mean, it's like corn was one of our main crops. And I mean, we made it into cornbread. You're, you could feed it to your mule so you could go out and and, uh, and uh, cultivate and that sort of thing. So kind of a multi-purpose crop. But it was also, uh, I mean, it was also one of the crops that was a, a indigenous crop grown by the Native Americans here. I mean, yeah. it just did well here, kind of the... The whole idea of the the three sisters, so corn, squash, and beans. That's uh that's what that's what the Cherokee and the Shawnee were raising here hundreds of years ago, and and uh, that's what uh, that's what people are raising here that were here a hundred years ago. Yeah, that were done it. So that that's kind of my take on corn. Probably one of the other things that uh, uh, one of the other reasons it. it has been a crop in the past it was largely uh not a hundred percent but it was a lot of scots Irish that settled in here uh so uh people from from uh lowlands of of scotland so i think it's ulster oh. scotland and ireland who came over uh a lot of them because they didn't have land and they were i mean there was just issues and troubles and political strife and famine over there right. a lot of those folks ended up here in that area, they also have a really big tradition of making Scotch, Irish whiskey, and that translates straight over to, to moonshine, uh, most right. of which is made with <laughs> corn. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, a, again, it's one of those things that you wonder wonder uh, how much of this was uh, was brought, to, brought from the people yeah. themselves versus the crops and what do good here kind of shaping the culture here. Yeah. I mean, again, there's back and forth and interplay, and somebody probably knows a lot better than I do, but it's something I wonder about and like to think about anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read The Omniverse Dilemma? 
yeah, by Michael yeah. Pollan because there's like a whole bit there about corn that was super <laughs> fascinating. Yep, it was yep. like in everything. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> like even the building is made of corn, <laughs> or it's got corn in it. You know. Yeah, gas. <laughs> or today, our cars eat more corn than we eat. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. That but, is. Uh, but yeah, it's a, a very. Yeah, it's a crop that's pretty ubiquitous and used very differently today than it was a hundred years ago for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're able to turn out 180, 200 bushel per acre, <laughs> you get a lot more of it than you can when you're turning out 14, 15 bushels to the acre. <laughs> yeah, wow. I can't even imagine what that looks like. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I guess... Oh my, that was a bird that hit the window. Yes, it was. <laughs> Poor thing. I do feel bad for them. Makes me feel bad that we have windows. <laughs> he, he flew off. He wasn't, probably wasn't too happy about it. I don't think it wounded him, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can we talk about grass farming? I yeah. guess that's a good segue for the corn because, you know, <laughs> I don't think cows should be eating grain. Yep. And, um,. I guess maybe we'll start with like how your family started getting into that. When your parents moved to their property, did they, is that one of the first things that they did to get animals or did they want to garden vegetables first? Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they put in the garden, but we've always had a garden. Uh, I mean, yeah, they just always had a garden, but yeah, one of the first things that they did moving down, uh, onto their farm was, Bought some, bought some cattle from one of our neighbors, uh, beef cattle. Yeah, that's that's what we we're planning to do. That's what my mom and dad were planning to do. So for us, we kind of came into mostly grass farming. I mean, we don't really feed any grain. We're a grass-based farm. That's what we that's what we do. That's how we manage all of our ruminants. But uh, really, how we got into it at first was uh, simply because of the cost savings. I mean, it's uh, it, we realized it just didn't pencil out to be buying grain and feeding your cattle. Granted, they'll grow faster, and, and you can make them grow faster and get bigger quicker. But uh, in terms of being really efficient with our land base and with what we've got, yeah, uh, it was grass. And I mean, that's uh, that's a beautiful thing about mm-hmm. uh, about grass is uh, or, or most of the forages is. We, we can't eat them, uh, so anything with a single stomach, a monogastric, can't eat it, but a ruminant can turn that grass into into a product. It can grow yeah. and, and uh, do great off that grass. Uh, so that's really what we were doing. It was, uh, uh, nowadays, you don't see, uh, don't see people raising corn on the side of the mountains here, but you do oftentimes see that they're cleared into pasture nowadays. Yeah. So uh, the place where I know for a fact that they used to raise corn on the side of that mountain is in grass now. Uh, wow. Really too steep. I mean, you can get a tractor over it, but it's not something you're going to cultivate, not something you're going to roll crop. Uh, mm-hmm. shouldn't shouldn't be row cropping it anyway from a from a erosion standpoint now that we've got other options yeah. but uh you can manage that with a, with a livestock and you can turn out a, a great healthy product that does well for the land and does well for us as eaters too yeah. by doing that so uh really for for our mode or our method of livestock production 
I mean, it's the grass, and it's really just managing managing the sunlight. So using the grass to catch the sunlight and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, turning turning that photosynthesis into into beef or lamb or or a uh, uh, goat or what whatever whatever the ruminant it is that we're focusing on, and we actually focus on all three of those, or we have all three of those species okay. here at our place. So that's uh. It's kind of what it's all about for us. It it is a good low cost way to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. Still, we believe the the most efficient way to make use of the land base that we have. But it's also uh, beyond that. I mean, it just makes sense. I mean, yeah. it just makes so much it sense does. to me to be able to do that and to be more self sufficient with what we have mm-hmm. and to accept that. Yeah, we're not uh, we're not getting as fast to growth on our animals, but uh, but there are other benefits. There's there's trade-offs to that, but there's benefits to it too, and we uh, we accept both of them, accept the trade-offs and accept the benefits both with open arms. Yeah. So it, it was always like that from the beginning? It was for us, yep. yeah. Yeah, and again, a big part of it, uh, one of the things that was probably best about uh, one of the better things after we got a little bit figured out is we didn't know, I mentioned it, we hadn't farmed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just never had. Didn't didn't really know what we were supposed to know. Didn't have a whole lot of bad habits to break. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of preconceived notions about the way oh, things okay. should be done. Yeah. Uh, so we were able to start with a, something of a clean slate yeah. and be like, well, what what are some different ways of doing it? And just talk to a bunch of different people and research and do our own research and see what actually we thought would work the best and and then uh, change it up too. I mean, there have been times when we, uh, there have been plenty of times when we started stuff and tried to add something into the system or take something away and and uh just realize that that wouldn't wouldn't be the best so it's a learning experience and that's probably what i enjoy the most about it is uh the more the more that i learn i mean i've been doing this now for almost almost 20 years coming up on it and the more that i learn about livestock and about managing the forages and about building the building the soil health and, and really about trying to get not necessarily the maximum productivity but the maximum efficiency mm-hmm. out of uh out of our land the more i learn about that the more I realize that there's more to know it's really like wow. putting together a big jigsaw puzzle and kind of a uh, kind of an intellectual challenge wow also a physical challenge at times but, uh, <laughs> but definitely definitely an intellectual challenge and i mean i always uh no matter how good you do it there's always always an opportunity to do it better which is uh pretty cool it never becomes robotic or boring i mean if it if it did i would probably not enjoy it anymore to be honest i mean there's always always some way that uh, i'm always seeing some way that i could improve or seeing somewhere where i think that i could improve at where we can improve the operation and uh and then been able to try that, see if it works, and if it doesn't, going back and trying something else. So yeah. there's always a uh, always something to learn from. How much land have you got as pasture? Yeah, between uh between the two farms, our place, and then my parents' farm, which we kind of manage them together. We're run about uh, uh 
kind of thing. Probably about sixty acres of pasture that we that we own between the two of us. And then uh that right. Nah, that's not right. It's probably more like uh, 75, 80 acres of pasture that we own. Wow. And then uh, we're, we're leasing a little bit, maybe another 10, 12 acres, something like that. No uh, way, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Is that somewhere else or kind of connected to here? Yeah, it's on. Uh, uh, it's connected to my mom and dad's farm. Uh, and we, we just picked the, we've had it in the past. Uh, somebody else had it and we just picked the lease back up again. It's actually... Uh, the farm, it, that farm that they're leasing is, uh, was my great aunt's farm. It sold out of the family, but, uh, yeah, the spot where we're at, we're actually, uh, have, uh, have cattle right down, right down where my, where my grandmother and her sisters and brothers were born at and where they grew up at. So. Wow. That's really neat. I don't, yeah, we don't have land in our family. Not like that anyway. <laughs> that's, that's really I just have to imagine it. <laughs> so, how many animals have you got? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, no, I would probably <laughs> might have to put in your show notes. I probably have to come back to you on that. That's all right. Yeah, because well, uh, it, it's kind of complicated because we have uh, we got our breeding stock uh for the for the cattle and the sheep and the goats and then we have all their litlands but then we're also uh yeah so yeah we got the breeding stock and all their litlands but then we're also saving some up that we're getting ready to finish off so we got a bunch that are kind of in between size too they're growing up and it'll be i mean anywhere from anywhere from six eight months old all the way up to a year and a half old getting ready to get them up to processing size but it's one of those things, it's pretty, uh, one of the things that we have seen over the years is, uh, I did add this up last year, I think, or year before last. And if you actually look at our acreage and then look at the, uh, put it in terms of animal units, so kind of standardize it with, uh, so instead of just saying X number of cows, if you kind of standardize everything, so many sheep count for a cow and, and uh, everything oh, of that nature, we're running about double the amount of animals now on the same amount of acreage as we were when we started 20 years ago. Wow. And uh, part of that's just us learning and, and getting better because, I mean, we did start out ground. I mean, ground zero, didn't know anything about <laughs> it. Uh, so so that's a big part of it, but a big part of it too, which is a direct result from us learning more knowing more as the land has got just a sight more productive and we're able to we're able to sustain more animals on the same amount of ground because we're growing more grass yeah. off of that uh, same same acreage that's amazing so again that's a that's the innate uh, fertility of the ground itself and in the plants doing that but i mean it uh the reason we're able to get there is just because we've learned and we've changed what we're doing. We're managing more intensively now. Uh, so one of the things that we do do, we use we use rotational grazing mm -hmm. across everything. And that's with all, all those species, uh, the sheep, goats, and the cattle, we're rotationally grazing them and uh, really tightening them down. So when we started out, uh, uh, 
we started out just started out with cattle my parents just started out with cattle we had the others over the years but uh we might would i think the farm was broke up into maybe two maybe three big pastures i mean it was essentially they they had didn't have the whole run of the farm but they mm-hmm. had close to the run of the farm and uh now there's sometimes the year we're moving them every day uh sometimes it might be might be three or four days before moving them but uh we're using portable electric fence to mm-hmm. hold them back keep them from going into these areas where they've just been at and allowing the grasses and the clovers to really rest yeah. and uh and and i mean that just makes it so much more productive i mean it's uh the forages do a lot better you have a lot better drought resistance drought tolerance and uh they start growing sooner in the spring and they grow longer in the fall in general than something that is just being continually cropped down and bitten and bitten and never has a chance to recover uh, but again, that's uh, that's something that anybody can do, and it's yeah. not that difficult. I mean, it's really not difficult at all. But until, but a lot of people don't do it because they think it might be a hassle, or they just mm. they're not set up. They don't have the infrastructure on the farm or something of that nature. Yeah. But uh, but that's something that we focused on is kind of improving our grazing management, and it's uh, it's paid off. It's paid off in spades in terms of what we what we can do and uh i think the animals like it better too i mean they yeah anytime you go out to move them it's always always fun to go out and <laughs> move the cows or the sheep whatever you're doing you holler at them and they know that when when i show up with a reel and i i start calling them <laughs> they know it's they know they're going to go and get a fresh strip of pasture so yeah. they'll, i'll run up to you and they oh. stand there and wait and, <laughs> Uh, they'll follow you. Uh, I mean, I can take off walk and just holler at them and lead them all the way across the farm somewhere if we want to because wow. they they know that whenever whenever we get where we're going, they're going to have a fresh paddock and they'll have supper waiting on them. Yeah. What time of day do you do that? It depends. Uh, a lot of times I end up doing it in the uh, in the evening just because I'm off work and, mm-hmm. and I've got time. But... Yeah, I do it in the morning, the evening, middle of the day, just whenever. It's uh, it's one of the things after after the animals kind of get trained to it and they realize what's going on, then mm. they'll they'll typically move pretty well. Uh, you know, they they know if they're going to be getting something good when you go to move them, so they they usually cooperate pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your system like? Do you have lanes or, and how do you deal with the water situation? Yeah, uh, a little bit different down here on our place uh, than than my mom and dad. So they've got several, uh, they've got quite a few permanent waters at their place. And uh, they'll, uh, yeah, they've got some permanent waters in different paddocks and different fields, different pastures, and they're able to manage around that. Uh, right now, uh, I've been using mostly uh, temporary waters. So I'll, uh, I'll just move the water tank with the with the animals move from field to field probably going to be that's one of the improvements we're going to be working on this summer actually is putting in some hydrants in some of the different fields so i'm not having to move quite as much uh holes and things of that nature i mean it's not awful but it's just one more thing that takes a little bit of time yeah so uh so uh that's how we're doing that in terms of the lanes and things uh both both farms are set up so that uh kind of just kind of how it is 
how the land lays on both properties the house is kind of in the middle of everything mm-hmm. and uh we got the the road and the house is fenced off and everything else is pasture okay. uh, uh down here of course we've got our vegetable fields and at mom and dad's they've got some barns and things but essentially the area right around the house is is uh surrounded by electric fence and uh we've got gates everywhere so we'll just uh, be able to open up the gates and then move them from one big field to the next and then once they get in a pasture i might have a uh, one of our pastures might be 15 acres okay. uh, but then i might split it up with a portable rail so a rail with temporary electric fence and i might split split that 15 acres up into just depend on how many animals there are and what the grass growth looks like it might get split up into one acre paddocks that get moved every few days it might get split up into five acre paddocks so we get split two or three times okay. it, it's a uh, very uh allows you to be very uh flexible mm-hmm. uh so that's kind of what we're doing we have uh all of our main fences or electric fences in big pastures and then we subdivide into smaller pastures using temporary electric fence and step-in poles so it's one of those things a lot of people are hesitant to do that because they're Mm -hmm. like well i don't have time to get out there and do that and i mean it takes maybe 15 or 20 minutes to do that but i mean i like to get out and look at the cows anyway and get out and walk around anyhow so we'd uh it's better than going out and buying feed and bringing it back yeah yeah well and i mean it's just good to get out on the get out on a place anyway so yeah. i mean it's uh i can understand why folks might might be uh hesitant to do it a little bit but it's been really good for us to yeah. to do that and uh, uh get a lot more production that way in the animals you're always you're seeing them every day or two for sure that way and if yeah. uh making sure that everybody's doing good and if uh somebody is having an issue uh mm. for some reason you're able to get on a lot faster than you would if you're only seeing them maybe once a week or yeah. every couple of weeks or something yeah that's true do you keep all the cows together all the sheep together or the goats or do you have different groups of them that you move around we usually keep all the cattle together. Uh, the sheep and the goats, we usually run together. Uh, and sometimes oh, we'll have them all three in at the same time, in the same place, have a flirt, flock and a herd together. But, uh, <laughs> flirt. Yeah, yeah, flirt. <laughs> but uh, the, we we'll, we'll usually run the smile room, and it's the sheep and the goat. We usually uh, keep them together all the time. And, uh, and I mean, all three species eat pretty different stuff that's why they work so well together Mm -hmm. the cattle are mostly eating grass they're grazers uh the sheep are eating a mix of grass and broad leaves so forbs weeds uh so a lot of people just call them weeds and then the uh goats are eating a little bit of forbs but mostly eating browse uh so uh so well some of the bigger taller weeds like iron weeds and eating a lot of the brambles, multiple rows, uh, blackberry, blackberry briars, uh, things of that nature. That's what the goats are really focusing on. Uh, so it's been, it's uh, kind of, and that's really why we got goats to begin with, was to mm-hmm. fight back some of that stuff that was just coming in, taking over the sides of the mountains mm-hmm. where we couldn't really get a, couldn't get a tractor to them to mow down the arm weed and the, and the blackberry briars. And I mean, there's, 
we uh, we don't really like walking around with a with a spray jug of herbicide, you know, yeah. spraying everything. And even if we did want to do that, you would literally have to walk around and do it. And I'm too lazy <laughs> to do that. So, uh, so for us, it's like, well, what can we do? Oh, we can get goats and goats want to eat them. So yeah. it's uh, like bring in the goats and the goats will eat the weeds and then we can sell the weeds at the end of the year. Package, <laughs> yeah. package <this> goat. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Is there enough fruit for them? Oh yeah, yeah. We we've taken our numbers up and down over the years, especially on the goats. Uh, yeah. uh, they about ate themselves out of a job there for a while, and we got down pretty low. But uh, we've we've added builder numbers on back up again, especially uh, after Maggie and I bought this place up here. Mm-hmm. It it hadn't been farmed in about ten years when we bought it, wow. and it was uh, grown up pretty bad. Still grown up pretty bad oh, <laughs> if, you, if you look around. <laughs> But uh, but if you'd have seen it in 20, 2013, 2014, it would uh, it's a completely different uh, completely really? different ball game now. Was it than it super was then. overgrown? Oh yeah, it was it was it was wild. <laughs> so it uh, wow. so the year that we bought it, uh, we bought it in I think July or August, maybe August of uh, twenty thirteen. And that year, they had leased out the the river bottoms that year for uh, one of my cousins raised raised corn on it that year, and that was the first year that again it hadn't hadn't been farmed. Period in about ten years prior to that, a uh, previous guy had a lease on it for cattle, but he had died, and uh, nobody had done anything with it in about a decade. And uh, when my cousin came in to plant the corn on it, they had to bring in. Uh, they had to get a, uh, a skid steer with a forestry mulcher on it, like a big, huge drum with teeth on it because the trees in the bottoms were so big. After 10 mm-hmm. years, I mean, it's just like box elders that were, <laughs> said there were box elders that were probably five, six inches. I mean, you couldn't cut them down with a tractor. They were so big. Yeah. So they had to like get get through there. It's just uh, amazing how fast everything in this part of the world will grow up in the brush and trees that's what it wants to be it yeah this this part of the world wants to be brush and trees and mm-hmm. it, it wants to be trees uh it'll become brush first and then trees but yeah it wants to be a forest if we would let it mm-hmm. <laughs> which i'm i'm all about the forest i love being out in the being out in the woods but uh yeah. also like uh being able to run some livestock around circles so. yeah <laughs> and it's gonna look amazing here once you've got your fruit trees growing I can't wait to see pictures of your yeah silvo pasture. I'm sure everybody that drives by thinks I've lost my mind uh, because <laughs> we do have uh, we some of the river bombs we have finally got got uh, most of the turned in pretty good production. We did just put in several several hundred uh, trees in the silvo pasture system. Uh, so I'm sure everybody driving by is like, they've actually got some open ground and he's planting trees in it. Like, they're, yeah. what are they thinking? Which is probably valid, but uh, but I think it'll be good. It's uh, it'll be good for the be good for the livestock. Big part of the reason we're doing it's for shade. Yeah. Uh, for the for the livestock and uh, it's also just something else that'll turn out hopefully. Few years down the road, uh, call it eight to ten years down the road, probably turn out another small but hopefully meaningful income stream from uh, yeah. walnuts and the pawpaws and the pecans that we put out there. So that's the so that's the goal anyway. For you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's gonna look so good! Oh my gosh! Wow. 
200 trees? Is that what you say? Uh, probably more than that. I actually put out close to 200 pawpaw trees. <laughs> Just wow. pawpaws. I love pawpaws. <laughs> but, uh, Why but, 200? How did you choose that number? Uh, it, it was just the spacing. So we uh, so we went in and I've got uh, so the overstory trees are black walnuts, pecans, and uh, persimmons. Okay. Uh, the majority of them being black walnuts and pecans. But they're on 20 foot spacing. So it's uh, about 75 feet between the rows. And then inside the row, the overstory trees, I mean, those guys will get pretty big. They'll probably get 75, 80 feet tall out in the open at least. Cons maybe a little bit bigger. But uh, they're on 20 foot spacing. If everything lives, which I'm sure some of it probably won't, but we'll probably come in, thin them out to a 40 foot spacing between the overstory trees. Right. And then the pecans are just between them filling in. So uh, the overstory trees are at 20 foot spacing, and then the pecans are between them at eight feet spacing. Okay. So that's that's how we ended up on the number of trees we put out. But we actually put out the trees in that pasture last year too. So there's about a. 150 pecans, walnuts, and mulberries in their other oh, pasture wow. over I really there. Want to grow mulberries. So. <laughs> That's nice. I saw a variety of mulberry that kind of grows like a like a cave or something. Like huh. you can go in there. I forgot what it's called. But I saw that in the Sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like a kind of weeping willow type thing. Huh. But it's mulberries. Yeah. That sounds great. And yeah. then the chickens, you could feed that to the chickens. Oh, yeah. I love mulberries, too. I just like yeah. to eat them. I mean, they're like a giant blackberry that grows on a tree. It gets better than that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> How many acres is this part where you're doing this, the silvopasture on this part? Uh, So this uh, this field here where the where this silvopasture is at is uh, about eight acres. Okay. Yeah, all the way around. Yep. So that's about eight acres in there. And you see kind of where we stopped there. We've actually already, you can see some tree cages out there in the field. So most of everything out here is in tubes, but about four years ago, we put in uh, some nut trees. Well, they're all nut trees out there at a lot lower density than what these are, but pecans, walnuts, hickories, and I think that's it couple of pecans I guess which are a cross a uh, natural cross between hickory and pecan but okay. you got some of those out there too that's why that why the far end of the field doesn't have any tree tubes in it it's got kind of the oh, uh, low okay. density trees already started out there but again not not nearly as packed in as tight as what those guys are in the tubes okay have you got any other future plans for this this part of the property? I don't know. I've about planted everything in that can. I think I'm going to uh, plant much more, plant me more trees. I'm going to have to give it up. I uh, have to give up pasture, I'm afraid. Now, I don't know. There might be a chance uh, up on the hillsides. May end up, uh, might try some chestnut trees up there at some point. Uh, it's something we've talked about. Uh, we, we do have some elderberries in that we put in. We put in a couple hundred elderberries this uh, past winter, too. And uh, if they do well, uh, probably probably put in some more elderberries. We got room to have, well, we got room to have, if we want to put them in out there, just in between the trees, uh, which is where I've got the elderberries and the other silver pasture, we've got room to put in probably uh, six, eight hundred elderberry bushes, I guess. So 
if uh, if the initial two hundred do pretty well, we may may put some more elderberries in at some point. But yeah, other than that, it's uh, just managing what we've got. I think is uh, is the biggest thing we're looking at now. The yeah. biggest thing I'm looking at now. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered something I wanted to ask earlier about the the grass yep. and the rotational grazing. Did you need to plant or sow? You know the the crops or was it just naturally what grew from bringing the animals in? Yeah, everything that's here, with the exception of that one pasture, is just what came up. Okay. And it's uh, mostly a mix of, of probably Kentucky 31 tile fescue is, is primarily what it is. Uh, some white and red clovers have come in over the years. Yeah, that's mostly it. Uh, a little bit of bluegrass, a little bit of Kentucky bluegrass, but mostly tile fescue, which is a good forage if it's managed well. The uh, pasture, the one pasture we did renovate that we uh, put a newer fescue in, uh, so it's a mix of fescue and bluegrass, or uh, fescue and orchard grass, rather. And we did that a few years ago, just to try it out. It's done really good, but uh, it's one of those things that it takes a long time to do it. You're pulling the Pulling the field out of production mm-hmm. to do that, whatever's out there, you got to kill it to to do it, and then to plant back into it. So you're losing essentially a full year's worth of production on field. Now, well, probably not. Uh, we're we're probably done renovating for a while, so we do do still put in some uh, clovers, some legumes, clovers. I put in uh, actually everything here this winter, just about everything here. I frost seeded with a annual lespedeza so it it's, uh, looks like a clover okay. uh, but it's a uh, annual lespedeza or uh, korean lespedeza is one of the other common names for it but it's uh does does well in more acidic soils so okay. i put that on bottoms but i put up on a mountain too and uh, first time i've ever played any of that we'll see how it does but uh Walk, walked around in circles with a hand seeder and broadcasted, broadcasted about 30 <laughs> acres down here with a with a hand broadcast seeder. So yeah. hopefully some of it comes up. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. Uh, you raised pigs too, right? Yeah, yeah. How many of those have you got, do you know? Uh, right now we don't have any that are on hand. So we never, uh, we've, we've never had pig breeding stock. Uh, we've always bought feeders okay. in. Yeah. We we usually don't keep pigs through the winter time. Um, we don't have any on hand right now. We had a few a few weeks ago, but they went into the process or okay. already. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll raise them up and uh, yeah, pigs are pigs are a lot of fun. I would I've thought real hard about getting some breeding stock, getting a few sales and board. Just haven't done it yet. But uh, yeah, we. It's really cool to have them out on pasture and watch them. I mean, they're just fun. They're, really? Yeah, are they like other trees there too? What are their requirements for them? <sighs> so, <laughs> I, I think a pig will probably do about anywhere, do well anywhere you put them, except for a swamp, probably. They'd probably do all right in the swamp, <laughs> to be honest. See, they're uh, incredibly resilient critters, uh, which is a problem when they go wild. And there's a lot of the U.S. that's got big issues with feral pigs. Yeah. But uh, for ours, uh, when we first got some and put them out on pasture, we put them out on one of our bottom land pastures, one of our river bottoms, and uh, that's uh, probably not something we're going to do too much of in the future. They uh, 
it, we we've never ranged our pigs. We've always let them root and everything, and it's amazing how much they can root up a uh, nice river bottom pasture. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I'd love to watch that. <laughs> not if it's your pasture, you would. <laughs> oh uh, but they've uh, uh, where we've mostly been putting Matt down here on our place, which I mean is. Kind of on the side of a hill, but kind of down toward the bottom too. But we had probably about uh, three or four acres down here that was just incredibly overgrown with with brush. And I mean, it was so thick you couldn't even walk through there. It's, I don't. It 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 fails. It's hard to explain how <laughs> thick it was in there. It was like so you can put figs in that. In I, well, it, it's been a process over the last several years to turn that into more of a, a traditional pasture rather than something that looks like it's out of a horror movie or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it was like well, twenty foot tall trees and vines everywhere, and I mean, wow. you you literally could not walk through it. Uh, but the combination of, of pigs and goats has turned it into a silver pasture. <laughs> so wow. it's a... Uh, like uh, well, together at the same time? No, nah, no, nah, I never did run them in the same time. So I ran pigs in there for several years and they, they rooted up a lot of, a lot of like multiple rows, which is an invasive rose uh, type of rose that we have here. I mean, they rooted up the autumn olives and a lot of other stuff too. But I mean, they kind of did the first pass at opening it up and ran goats in there for a few years and they finally got everything open enough that I, I spent a uh, spent a few days in there with a chainsaw this past winter kind of opening it up even a little bit more i mean it's uh they, they've done really well in there pigs love it i mean they're kind of in the in the shade and they're find a find a log that's down turn it over and try to figure out how to dig out and wreak havoc somewhere <laughs> Get out and eat a eat an apple tree or something. I don't know. But they, uh, they're actually pretty easy to manage on pasture. They uh, pigs oh really do not like electricity, and uh, so all of our uh, electric fences uh, they make bad noises when they get in it. But they learn um, they learn really quick. So, yeah. like I said, they're just so smart, uh, incredibly smart, fun to watch, and just fun to. Fun to be around them. I really want to try getting pigs one day. <laughs> Is it true? Are you, do you have trouble with goats and keeping them in? We had never really had too much trouble with them. Uh, when I was growing up, we had issues, but we also didn't know how to build electric fence then and were, thought we did and just didn't. So <laughs> didn't know what we were doing. So that was our fault, not the goats. Right. So we'd never had any issues until last year toward the end of the season. And we have one goat that kept getting getting out. And uh, she about gave me a heart attack a few times because she would get out. And then when she would get out, all of her buddies would figure out they could get out too. And then, uh, yeah, having that one individual, mm-hmm. I mean, she was willing, just willing to go through a fence and take a shot. Uh, which it was toward the end of the year and the fences uh, there's a lot of stuff up in them and I mean the fences were probably weren't carrying quite the oomph as they as they could have uh, yeah. so that was that was a big part of it I mean she just lost her respect for the fence but after uh, after she figured out that she could do it she started making a habit of it what was uh <laughs> what was really funny we'd had her here for a while I mean she had been she had been getting out and getting up in the yard, and I'm like, all right, that's aggravating. 
But then she like figured out she could get in with the chickens and eat the chicken feed. And I'm like, all right, that's that's a step wow. too far. That's yeah. real aggravating. Oh my god! And uh, so she'd been doing that for a few weeks, and it was about the time that we were going to take all the sheep and the goats from our farm back up to my mom and dad's. Is usually where we overwinter them. We don't have a barn down here, so we uh, typically overwinter them. My mom and dad, so they can get into the barn for a wind break. More for the more for the goats and the sheep. I told my dad, I said, that goat is driving me crazy. I said, I'm going to get rid of that thing. I said, she keeps getting out and like, she gets out and then everybody else gets out. Like she's teaching yeah. the bad habits. Dad's like, ah, oh, it's the best goat we got. He's like, we're not getting rid of that goat. Oh, no. I'm like, I'm like, I'm ready to eat her myself and put her in the freezer right now. Like, and he's like, ah, oh, it's the best goat we got. You're not doing anything yet, goat. I bet she knows it too. Yeah. He took him home and about two weeks later, he took him to his house. And about two weeks later, he said, I'm hauling that goat off next time oh, we, <laughs> since she's got out and said she's leading everything here out. I said, well, <laughs> shoes on the other foot now. <laughs> Uh, so so she got to take a trip to the market but since we got rid of her we haven't had any more issues we had the one yeah. troublemaker <laughs> <laughs> there's always one one never crowd i guess yeah we've had that experience with our chicken there's always one <laughs> always one troublemaker uh, i have two last questions yep so the first one i just wanted to hear some about how you manage the ruminants in the winter time and then my second question is the last question that I ask everybody. Yep. So uh, for us, uh, a little bit different. Uh, sheep and goats, we're managing them together and in the same way. The sheep wouldn't really have to have much. I mean, we're everything we have, we're uh, keeping them on pasture as long as we can, sheep, goats, and cattle. Keep them on pasture as long as we can. Use a lot of uh, stockpile grass. So essentially, think of it as standing hay. So it's not being cut by the grass still does really well up into the winter. After they eat all that up, we'll put them on hay. So uh, sheep and the goats we have in together, we have it set up so they can get in and get out of the wind. Again, that's a lot more for the goats than the sheep. We have hair sheep, so they shed their, they grow a winter coat of wool that's real thick, but then they shed that winter coat off in the summer. Okay. But that winter coat is really thick and they, they don't really need a lot of shelter as long as they can get in out of the wind. But the goats do need some shelter, so we have it set up so they can get in the barn. Okay. Uh, and then feeding them hay out on pasture so that when they walk out there, they're uh, moving the hay rings around, or the hay feeders around. We're not using the rain for them. We're using a, a special feeder uh, made for sheep and goats. It's a round bell feeder for sheep and goats that okay. keeps them from wasting nearly as much hay. Right. So that's what we're doing with them. Then they go back in at night and get out of any weather. Cattle, we just keep them out on pasture. They never go into a barn or anything like that. One thing that we have started doing the last, uh, just finished up our second year with it, and we really like it with the cattle especially, is uh, something called bell grazing, which is very, I mean, it's real similar to what you would do otherwise, but instead of taking all your hay out and taking it out and and putting hay out every couple of days and putting it in the rain and keeping the rain in the same spot. Uh, we're actually taking hay out and spreading hay out through the field. So putting uh, putting rolls of hay out, round bales, okay. and we might have enough out there to do them for 
six, eight weeks, month, mm-hmm. month and a half, and uh, all through the field. And they can't get to most of it. We pull a hot wire, a temporary electric fence across it, so they can't get to most of it. They ain't going to get to two or three rolls where we want to get to. Okay. And we put the uh, uh, hay ring around that. They eat it. And then we move the hay ring to the next ones, and they're just kind of moving back. Right. But by doing it that way, they're not uh, not pugging a place up. They're not causing mm. a tremendous amount of destruction in one place on the pasture. But the thing that's really good about it is they're spreading all winter long. They're spreading their manure and their mm. urine all around the field. Yeah. And uh, the organic matter from the hay is getting spread out better, mm. too around the field by staging it that way and uh so you're really building up the nutrients really building up the soil organic matter the thing that's really neat about it is you never have to start the tractor up in the winter time so instead of going out there every two or three days with a tractor it's cold tractor don't want to start have to plug it in (laughs) leave it plugged in for 30 or 45 minutes and then haul hay out to them and then come back and you've killed an hour hour and 15 minutes before you know it Instead of doing that, we just go out, pick the bell ring up, which we got some uh, bell rings that are made out of uh, HDP plastic, I think, and they're okay. pretty light, super durable, but really light. And instead of starting a tractor up, just go out there and it takes 10 minutes to pick a bell ring up, roll it over, flop it onto another, <laughs> and then move the hot water and the cows are moved. And you've saved a lot of diesel fuel, saved a lot of time, and uh, and not uh, and and spread your nutrients around the field better while distributing your organic matter better. Oh, so I love that. It's so a much. good win. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it feels so good when yeah stuff like that happens. I, I, I like doing less work that makes more sense. Yeah, and more abundance too. Yep. Like, yeah, synergy. Do you, have you listened to the podcast at all? I have, yeah. So you know what my last question is? It's been a few weeks, so <laughs> you're going to have to remind me. Okay, so the last question that I ask everybody that's on the show is, if you could tell the world just one thing, what would it be? I guess the probably the biggest thing I would tell people is that you have options. You can do more than you think you can, and uh, just go from there. Yeah. That's that's really good, because <laughs> I think a lot of people feel stuck. Yeah. There's there's always options. Options are good. <laughs> always, uh, we always have a chance to change what we're doing and change who we are if we need to, and that's a that's a cool thing about being a human, I guess. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Francis. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been really good. Thank you. I appreciate the time. <laughs> I've learned so much, too. Well, so. I always enjoy getting to hear myself talk. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Harmony of Stories podcast. I would so love to hear from you, whether it's a simple hello, a question, or any feedback you may have. You can connect with me via Instagram or Telegram. You'll find links to my social media on my website, wildflower.cloud. You can also drop me an email at wildflower at hay.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and are getting a lot out of it, please spread the word and share it with your friends. 
your family, and anyone you come across. If you feel called to support the podcast, I invite you to check out the Support My Work page on my website. There you can send a donation or connect with honest businesses, which I am proud to be working with. These include Thrive Market, where I buy my organic or non-GMO pantry staples, Law for Mankind, where you can learn about natural law and how to be a sovereign man or woman in these times. Thrift Books, my favorite online secondhand bookstore. And last but not the least, ASEA, the only company in the world who offer products that contain cellular messengers, vital in protecting, rejuvenating, and restoring the cells in your body. ASEA has been really amazing for us. It helped our cat recover beautifully from a neurological issue that caused her to lose the ability to stand up or walk. She's totally fine now. She's thriving. It's really, I'm very <laughs> blown away. And when I shared the ASEA Renew Gel with my neighbor Chris, who had a very swollen leg, he texted me the next morning saying that the swelling had gone way down and that the pain is half what it was the night before. I use this for everything now, from cuts and scrapes to itchy bug bites. And there are a ton more ways that this technology has transformed the health of others. If you would like to learn more about ASEA, you can book a call with me via my website at wildflower.cloud book. I'd be more than happy to tell you all about it and answer any questions you may have. Alternatively, you can check out the Support My Work page on my website and scroll down until you find ASEA. I love you all so much. Have a wonderful day.